Welcome to episode five of Two Daves in a Doc. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Emma Smith about her journey through her PhD. Let's join the conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode five. I can't believe we're at five already. Uh, it's It's been incredible. But episode five, where we're actually turning two Daves and a Doc into and guests. And in this case, we have Dr. Emma Smith, who has a PhD in rehabilitation science from the University of British Columbia. So welcome, Dr. Emma Smith. And I'm going to let David do the, uh, the great introduction here since I... <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it's really nice to have uh, you on, Emma. It's, it's brilliant because I think it's about three years since we met at Freedom Tech. Uh, so we were over there. It was a conference around assistive technologies and those elements as well. So we, we started uh, to chat at that point. Uh, and then we were involved in uh, an accessibility hackathon. So you ended up uh, flying all the way over to Ireland just for... Uh, an accessibility hackathon here in, in Dublin, which was, you know, uh, uh, pretty astounding to, to be perfectly honest that someone would do that. So I think um, at that point, it was like, you know, um, that was that secured your place in like Dublin folklore uh, within, that, within that space. So it's been really interesting watching your work. And now you're here working in Ireland as well. So we're really lucky to, to have you and delighted to have you on the show. So um, I'm really curious to know about your experience going through a PhD. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about the, the importance of networking, uh, the networks, building those networks up going on and having a community of practice around you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Um, so I'll give you a bit of a background just for everybody about um, my PhD, but uh, the networks piece weaves into it in a major way. So I think it's a great place to start. Um, as Dave Graham mentioned, I did my PhD at the University of British Columbia in Rehabilitation Sciences, and I'm a clinical occupational therapist by training, so going into rehab sciences, I had already worked in the field um, for a number of years, I had been working with clients, so I was coming into the PhD from a bit of a non-academic background, I never did a research-based master's, um, so the PhD was really my first real introduction to research and to applying all of those great skills that I had learned in my clinical degree and in all of my clinical work to uh, the research world. So um, coming at it, it was, um, first off, it was a really positive experience. I had a great advisor, and I know you guys talked about advisors in uh, one of your former episodes, and I had a really wonderful advisor who guided me through the process, and I was very lucky, and he was also an occupational therapist, so I think we started from a similar background. Um, but I had also built all these great networks before I started my PhD, just in terms of professional networks in a variety of different ways. I had professional networks in occupational therapy. I had professional networks in assistive technology. Um, and those ended up being my informal advisors. And they ended up being the people who supported me all the way through. Uh, and they also informed a lot of the work I did. So. Um, those networks were a critical part of my PhD. I actually, I ended up doing a lot of volunteer work with them throughout. I had one of my colleagues during that time say that she felt that I actually treated my volunteer and my network work more seriously than some of my PhD work, but I just didn't see the distinction between them. Um, so really they have led me to where I am today. And uh, I don't know that I would have been even half as successful as I was in the PhD work that I did if I hadn't had those networks. I certainly wouldn't be in the position I am uh, living in the lovely island of Ireland if I hadn't been there. Well, I think cool. this, this is where we, we embarrass you and go, don't you have a medal for volunteering? I do. 
<laughs> Tell us yeah. about the medal. Uh, well done, this, David. Well done. <laughs> oh, I do my, I do, I do my research. I'm learning. <laughs> yeah, a few years ago, I was awarded the Sovereign's Medal for Volunteers. So, uh, little known fact: the Queen of Canada is Queen Elizabeth II, and therefore we have Sovereign's Medals. Um, so, it's our highest national honor for volunteerism in Canada, and it was largely because of my volunteer work with professional networks, interestingly enough, but also with other organizations that serve people with disabilities that I was awarded that. Excellent. Well done. Can you give us some insight on what your actual doctoral work was about? Sure. So my thesis, which formed probably about 25% of the work I did in my doctorate in terms of my research work, was uh, developing a new technology to support powered mobility training for people who, have, uh, who are unable to walk and need to use a powered wheelchair, and then applying that new piece of technology in a clinical setting, uh, the prototype technology to see if it would actually be feasible to implement it with older adults who have memory impairments. So we were working with um, older adults in long-term care and residential care facilities who have preclinical dementia or mild cognitive impairment, and basically proving that if you can um, provide the right supports, then anybody can learn regardless of their cognitive status. And really that was what we set out to do, but we were developing technology in the process. So I worked with a really great interdisciplinary team. We were clinicians and engineers and designers. And um, my, my team got me through it. And we, we have some great results that we're now starting to publish, but it's, uh, it's a long haul and it's a big, it's a big task. Excellent. Excellent. Sounds great. So you kind of did something I think that all of us on this kind of conversation are guilty of, as in volunteering their time for practice-based outcomes related to their actual own work. And, you know, you're, the people you volunteer with nearly become informal research collaborators and research partners. So how did you find that, like, balancing the dynamic of having your kind of, let's call them volunteers, external research volunteers taking part? And was there any conflicts on how they integrated with the kind of, you know, what can be sometimes rigid area of academia? I think um, I was lucky in that I had networks who were supportive but weren't necessarily directly related to my research. So my research project itself wasn't within any of those networks. And so all the people that I volunteered with, they were in similar and supportive fields, but not necessarily exactly in the research work that I did. There are some of them who found their way in, who I'm doing some publications with now and who have become my collaborators over time. Um, and I think that was actually one of the great benefits of the networks was developing collaborators outside of my tiny little group of supervisors, which I think is one of the big risks sometimes as we get into this little bubble of who our supervisors are and who we work with on a day-to-day -day basis. But because I had these broader networks that I went into the PhD with, um, I, I developed those as collaborators on the research side as well over time. Um, what that meant is that I now have this global network of collaborators that I've been doing work with that isn't necessarily directly related to the things that were in my thesis. And that's why when I said my thesis was about 25% of the research work I did. Um, I did all of this other research because I had these wonderful collaborators and these great networks. And the consequence for me was really exciting. Um, my undergraduate background was actually in international development. And all of those collaborations led me to present um, in the executive boardroom at the World Health Organization, which was like a dream come true. And that was entirely network related and it largely had nothing to do with my PhD work. That sounds really interesting from, from a perspective of someone 
coming in, understanding some volunteer work over the last you know few years, working with yourselves and some of the others. Uh, but for someone coming in who might have never done this before, who's like, you know, volunteering is like a very scary world for them. They'd like to do it, but they're like not too sure how to get started. Like, do you have any recommendations on how they might start doing something like that or looking into these spaces, but also as well, you know, what can they expect in terms of learning new skills or learning, you know, uh, new elements of, of knowledge within that volunteering space? Yeah, I would say in terms of getting involved, for me, it was about finding an area of passion and saying, this is the group that I'm really interested in and then taking the leap. So um, one of the groups that I volunteered with was in the area of adapted skiing. I loved skiing. I loved working in disability. Um, I became an adaptive ski instructor as a volunteer. That led to a great additional network, which again was not related to my research. We did end up researching in the area as we went <laughs> along because how could you not? Um, but it was about finding an area of passion and then saying, I'm going to put myself out there. And that's not a natural place for me. I'm not, I'm not keen on being in groups of large, large groups of people that I don't know. Um, so putting myself into those situations is challenging, but I think the benefits that I got from it were so much bigger and, and they were absolutely worth it. Um, and so to, I think that goes to your second question, which is just around the benefits. And I would say, all of my experiences with those networks and volunteering, they gave me all of the soft skills that maybe weren't the research skills I was going to get through my PhD training. So it was things like developing transferable leadership skills. All of those volunteering opportunities made me a much more attractive candidate for things like grants and awards and scholarships. Um, it meant that I was then seen as a very visible leader in my field, which has turned out to be quite important as I've gone along but it also gave me a sense of satisfaction of contributing to my field in a way that felt more meaningful and real than maybe some days my research did. Because I think some days our research can feel a little bit separate from the real world, even if we're doing really applicable practical research. Um, so those opportunities made me feel like I was a bit more in the midst of it and it was a bit more real to me and my contributions were meaningful. Um, but it also was things like communication skills, how to chair meetings, how to lead a group and actually accomplish an outcome, uh, coordinating events and conferences. All of those became really important transferable skills that I use every day and arguably that I use more than the research skills that I learned in my PhD. It's a very good point. Yeah, it's something that like, it's a point of impact, I think, you know, so historically, the field of academia was measured impact, be it grant applications, or be it kind of <laughs> professorial roles that measure impact on your impact factor, or how many yeah. views or reads your journal paper got. Maybe it was appropriate for its day, it was well before my time, so I have no idea. But now impact, it means more, you know, it's actual human measured impact. And sometimes academia can have a problem with developing human measured impact. So you, you've it's, not, just, it's not its strength. It's not a strength, no, unfortunately. No. But you've just kind of shown us how you can do it by volunteering and creating this diverse kind of research pool. And as you described, it's kind of similar tactics to the work all three of us have done before as well. It's nearly like researchers going to research, you know, that sort of, you start the project, you eventually then turn it into more research. You afterwards. can't help it. You can't help it, exactly. But no. you, you are like us, exactly, striving for a better world, you know, a more inclusive, more open, more diverse, accepting world in the kind of work we do. So, you know, what I mean, the intersect between your volunteer work and your academic work were really, really good. But on a kind of more logistical question, did the process of doing the PhD 
integrate well with your want to do that. So I know you had very good, you know, research network and a very good supervisor and great support, but the process itself, how did you find that of, you know, what is a traditionally, you know, very structured linear process and you were trying to add in these external new volunteer elements. How did the process go? Well, I should note that my PhD took me five and a half years. So I think that speaks somewhat to the fact that I had a lot of competing interests at the same time. Um, I, I perceived my PhD to be a full learning experience. It was not just for me research training. And I was lucky to have others who supported me in that belief. Um, and even now in my postdoc work, I have colleagues and peers who, who regularly remind me that my volunteer work is part of my research work, that, that they're not actually distinct and separate. And I think sometimes we get into this world of things have to be in bubbles or they have to have distinction. Um, certainly my life has no distinction in, in terms of what I do in, on a day-to-day -day basis um, because I'm passionate about all of it. And I think because my, I was just as passionate about the research work I was doing in my PhD as I was the volunteer work. And because there was so much crossover just in my areas of interest, um, they worked well together only because they were similar and because I, I made them work well together. Um, the first year of my PhD, I worked seven hours a day and there's seven days a week, 12 hours a day. It was not healthy. Um, and I, I recognized that pretty quickly. I, in the subsequent four and a half years, I basically didn't work evenings and weekends unless I had to. Some of that time ended up devoted to some of my volunteer work, but a lot of it ended up all devoted to actually feeling like a whole human. And um, I, I just worked my volunteer work into the spaces that I had available but I definitely didn't see them as distinct and separate. I love what you're saying with that. You, you found the balance, like a lot of what we've struggled with, you know, especially you know, I'm coming at this, uh, let's see, last time I went to school was 14 years or 16 years ago. Right. Yeah. You know, I got my master's then, you know, and I've worked in industry since then, you know, so a lot of, you know, I have a life. <laughs> what I'd like to say, you know, I have this little bubble that I've carved out for myself, you know, and I think a lot of us have brought in that kind of life experiences, you know, life experience, especially into the, into the graduate space. But I like that you found balance in that, you know, we throw ourselves at problems so often, you know, it's this, I have to do this. I have to succeed. I have to be what is proscribed. I mean, Colin alluded to that as well. You know, academia has always set up this kind of idol of you're the guy that the burning the candle on the desk late at night in the library and all of, you know, you're there until it closes and you try to sneak in and stay in and do that. But the fact that you found balance in that, I think is hugely important is something that a lot of people don't understand. Or if you're skipping or not skipping, you're never skipping, but if you're going from an undergraduate degree directly into a doctoral program, you kind of have that, that blurred reality. I've been in academia, therefore I've never separated myself from it. Therefore this makes a lot more sense, but learning to live. And I, I love that you've taken life experience. You've combined it together, that passion pursuit. And we alluded to it even last episode, which is that plumb line. Hey, came back where you're lining head and heart together into something that logically orients yourself. Can you, you mentioned some of this, these intersections between volunteer work and um, your, uh, your obvious academic research. Do you, what would be your advice to somebody coming in or even 
backing up, looking at doing this graduate um, style approach. How would you recommend folks start to tie these, these ideas together? You've alluded to volunteers and volunteer work and whatnot, but can you give a little bit more context around how these things kind of knit together? Sure. Um, hard question to answer, you know? That was a tough one. It's okay. It's, this is, there's this no, is going live. There's a <laughs> David Frost level question right there. Precious moments with Dr. Emma Smith. I think, you have to, <laughs> I think you have to figure out um, where your priorities lie. And there are some things that are going to be a priority and there are some things that aren't. And those that are, are worth finding ways to connect. I had my supervisor actually, and he'll laugh because he'll see this at some point. Um, he told me one day that I needed to learn how to start saying no. And I suspect that this is a problem all three of you also have, um, that saying no is a really difficult thing. And yes. especially yes. when they're exciting ideas and there's opportunities. And so yeah. saying no becomes something you have to learn to do. And it, it is a learned skill. And my supervisor one day sat me down because I was really busy and just said, you need to start saying no to some things and you need to learn how to do this. And then the next week came to me with a project that he thought I was probably able to do and should be doing. And I said, no. And he just kind of looked at me and went, <laughs> okay, I know I told you you needed to start learning to say no, but I didn't mean to me. <laughs> and he was joking, but it was real in the sense of, um, no one wants you to say no to them. They know that you're too busy and they know that you have too much going on, but they don't want you to say no when they need you to do something or when they want you to do something. But for me, it was about saying, does this fit within the plan that I have or the things which I'm passionate about? And if it doesn't, is it a meaningful diversion? And is it something that I think is going to take me to where I want to be down the road? And so a great example of this is about two years into my PhD, um, I was coming to Ireland for a workshop and my supervisor asked me to meet with somebody almost as like uh, sending ahead his, his um, ambassador, right? Like go meet with this guy, see, see if you think we could work with him. Um, it, we had ended up getting on really well and I ended up coming to Ireland for six months on a fellowship, which was a diversion from my PhD and a complete diversion. I was going from tech development and clinical implementation to policies and systems. And it felt like a very significant diversion, but I got supported by my university to do it. To me, although it didn't knit well into the story I had been building, it knit really well with my long-term interests, but also it felt like a really meaningful diversion. That's who I work with now in my postdoc three years later. So it was obviously a meaningful diversion, but if you had asked me at the time what I was intending to do with my PhD, this was not it. Um, it's where I'm absolutely pleased that I am and I'm thrilled that I'm doing what I'm doing, but it was about identifying where the meaningful diversions were and saying yes to those and saying no to the things which really didn't fit within what made sense for my future. That's awesome. I really appreciate the explanation. Tough question that it was, <laughs> evidently. I don't know. <laughs> it, for, that's for great. Better, better answer. Better answer. Meaningful oh, hell yeah. Diversions. <laughs> I've written, yeah absolutely. I've written that I've written that down. That's that's uh, something that's after hitting home to me from my perspective because, like, I know for for example, like, well, you said yes to coming on this, Emma, uh, in terms of coming on the podcast. So clearly, you haven't learned, you know, how to say no to to some of the less meaningful uh, diversions. But no, that's that's super interesting. 
uh, from, from my perspective as well, like that's what I'm only learning um, because I, I get this fear of missing out. And, oh, it's, I, it's real. <laughs> and I can't help it. And I'm like, I really want to understand. I want to know what's going on there. Uh, how, do, how do you handle that? Uh, because as a naturally curious person, that, that must like eat away at you at times. Like, what, what do you do? You say yes to more than you should. <laughs> I, I, I mean, realistically, you, um, you do. You end up saying less to more than you should, and then you find yourself overwhelmed, and at some point you decide something has to be scaled back. <laughs> and it's this, I think it's this constant cycle. But I think also it, it requires you to abandon the concept of linearity in terms of your path. And I had a, a great... Um, she was a professor in my in my lab, but she wasn't directly my direct supervisor. And she did a presentation one day, which was like a, how did I become me, basically? And she walked us through the path that she took to get to where she is. She's one of the most successful stroke researchers in the world, um, very well known. And I just had always assumed she had this very linear path to where she ended up and that she had always had this like ironclad focus on where she wanted to be. Um, then she showed us this map of how she got where she wanted. And it was like off ramps every second week. Like she had just taken so many different off ramps from this path where she had ended up exactly where she was today, but it absolutely wasn't where she was going to start. Um, I'm sure that she really didn't anticipate where she was going to end up. And um, it was really good for me to see that this very successful person who was obviously a great uh, role model in so many ways that she didn't have a linear path either. And it made me feel better about it and made me realize that I was allowed to let go of some things that I felt like I should be hanging on to because they were in my past, but you don't have to. And maybe it's more about how we let go of things than it is about how we say no to the future things. That's a very relevant point. I like, yeah, it's that's you've summarized it perfectly. I find from, it's very, very similar to the land of startups as well in particular particularly being the victor writes the story afterwards. So there's an awful lot at academia and startups. I consider exactly the same traits. You know, you only hear about the top rung winners, you know, the tenured Nobel prize winning professors, you know, the big CEOs that exit billion dollar corporations, depending on their level of honesty is whether you find the truth or not. You know, a real honest one will, will explain a story exactly like you just did you know very divergent paths lots of failures lots of different opportunities and no linear path unfortunately that honesty is not very common in both academia and startups and then it looks like this very linear straight line road to kind of success at the end which is which is just blatantly untrue you know we know it and it's there and all of us here are guilty of doing it i can tell already we are all guilty of exactly the same things taking on too much how many times in the last month have you said, why did I agree to do this? Still do it anyway. Again, did it yesterday yes. morning. Thank you very much. Every day. I think it's pray to people that care. You know what I mean? You want to leave an impact. If you see a chance to leave some impact, you want to leave the world a better place. You have it. We all have it. And you know, I, the, the way you've tied it into your kind of doctoral research is very commendable well done it's amazing and it's a kind of blueprint for other people to integrate the same sort of meaningful impact oh there's been lots of failures i don't know if it's a full blueprint that's a much longer podcast that happens about failures are great too trust me failures are great we have a separate a separate series on failures with hundreds (laughs) of thousands of episodes in it yeah i think it's a good it's a good thing to remind people of though that 
we've all had them and they've made us better researchers in lots of ways, better citizens and um, better at doing what we do every day. Like if I hadn't had half the failures that I've had, I probably couldn't do everything I now do. I think managing failures is, is quite challenging because even the word failure, like, it, you know, when you hear it, it, it almost seems like a dead end, uh, which it isn't. And I think that's that's one of the things that is, is so uh, important to kind of recognize, especially within this space, is that, you know, it's okay to go and something doesn't work out like you anticipate or someone else might anticipate. Uh, and f- from my perspective, I'm curious to know, even from, from all three of you, uh, and Emma, maybe you could take this one first, is around how do you uh, manage that failure for yourself in terms of like, you know, when it happens first, it's never nice, but you know, how do you, how do you get beyond that and go, okay, I can, you know, put that in a box and I put it to the side and, and use what I need out of it to, to move forward. Yeah. Um, I would say my first big experience with failure was I applied for a major national fellowship in my first year of my PhD and didn't get it. And <laughs> I thought I had been really competitive. I was told I was really competitive and I scored in like the bottom 14% or something. Like I really didn't get it. Um, And I didn't get it the next year either. And my supervisor came in the second day, second time I didn't get it and said, I really hope you're not discouraged. And he meant it like there, there is so much more here that we can do. And um, we, you know, that failure becomes normal in a sense, because especially in academia, and I think, and Colin, I think talking about the startup world, probably very similar, you experience failure over and over and over and over and over again. So it almost becomes habitual. And (laughs) I think that helps because you realize that the next day you've moved on and you've, there's another opportunity and there's another door. And so I think the regularity of it helps, oddly enough, it's rather than being demoralizing, if you can kind of approach it as, okay, we're going to learn from that one, move on to the next, and um, the next will be better. And every time the next is better, because you did learn from it every time. So um, the failures aren't only in academia. I mean, there's personal failures as you go along as well. Um, Not every friendship survives the process. Not every relationship survives the process. Um, You end up in different places than you anticipated. And those are all great learning experiences too. But you need to have that mindset going into them. And I think that's the challenge is acknowledging them as learning experiences rather than seeing them as defeats is hard and um it takes a good support network to get you there and honesty in that support network as well so you know you're as you are very honest about them as all three of us kind of are as well it's it's hidden unfortunately you know it's the, uh, to me, I, I, I'm kind of, I'm noted, I think, in media, unfortunately, so it was publicly recorded, me saying I love failure, I embrace it. Now I do. It's true. But it's it's good like, to embrace it's it. a very, very good thing. As you <laughs> yeah. said, everyone will experience it multiple times in their life. And to use a startup analogy is, you know, you want to keep failing until the one time you don't kind of fail. You know, you yeah. want to, and you just find your way to roll out of it. And as you mentioned, support networks are very good. Two of mine are on this call with us right now. And, you know, you just oh, kind of, you, 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 you know, well, this is the loving section that we're having. So, you know, it's just. <laughs> You know, you 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 get to lament, you get to complain, and as you'd said, like it is, yeah, it's something you need to protect yourself from, but embrace at the same time, take it as a path, and get used to the fact you're not gonna. We talked before this about reviewer number two, so any academic will know the pain of a reviewer number two. If you want harsh feedback, 
submit academic papers and you will get some of the harshest feedback you will ever get in your life. Uh, you know what I mean? It's you just get used to it. You know, funding. I, I had one reviewer say that I really should probably find a native English speaker to edit my work. Oh, <laughs> which was great. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I had that same feedback not yeah. one week ago. Yes. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> it happens. Um, but the support network, <laughs> I had, I worked in uh, an office, there were six desks and we were known as the annex because we were an annex to our main research lab and we're i mean we're now talking about whether we could possibly put together a television show based on it because it felt like a, a sitcom for the time we were there but it was the support network was really what drove all of us i mean it's what we came into work for every day in a sense like was the camaraderie and the opportunity to share in each other's successes but also to support each other through some of the more challenging pieces that's yeah. a very good tip. And then a sense of perspective is, and I think oh, what I got from your conversation is your volunteer work gave you that perspective. Definitely. You know what I mean? You got that perspective. You knew why your work was important because you got to see it through the volunteer work on a daily basis. And yeah. if you don't have that perspective, it's something I'd encourage everyone to do is go and try and find a way to get some, you know, external reviewers. My lovely grandmother uh, is one of mine. She does not really care what I do. She does not care what accolades you get, where you talk, where you publish, nothing. All she asks is, are you happy doing what you're doing? And if the answer is yes, she's happy. So, you know what I mean? You need to find these sorts of sounding boards and like being open and honest and working with other people are some of the best ways to get them. Strips away all that pretense. Yeah, the failure stuff is really interesting. You know, I went through a I'm one of those startup statistics, you know, I, uh, I had a startup that I got in there, you Me know, too. we got, got through our C round, we got 30 something million bucks and two months later, I'm out of a job because the, you know, it goes in the tank and you sit there and you're like, Oh God, what did I just do? But in that, you know, it's that humbling. It's that, that, that moment where you kind of realize that not everything you're going to do is going to be gold. You're not going to be that, that outlier that, you know, the unicorn or whatever, you know, and, we have this kind of mystique that's built up around whether it be academia or built up around these things that all of a sudden you become, I don't know, someone mentioned Albert Einstein, you know, you're going to become this Albert Einstein internationally renowned and recognized. I mean, yeah, no, you're not, you know, like the, the best part is that, and, and Emma, you, you've said it over and over again, you've connected your head to your heart and you're doing the things that matter and to you. You know, and yeah. the best part is you're bringing other people along with you. You're building that that, that annex. I love the annex. Con you know, this is my annex. Oh, right the here. annex. I mean, yeah. just, we, we now have a virtual annex that we go to whenever we need support <laughs> where we all just join up on Zoom. <laughs> well, we got two Daves and a doc and guests now. So we, we, we'll, we'll enlarge that circle. There's more deaths. I, I, I sense a kind of rehabilitation technology annex developing among us right now. So, yeah. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> So, the important Emma, thing about failure real quick, you know, the failure thing is you only fail if you don't try, you know, and that's in that attempt and trying, you know, and, and there's probably the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. But, you know, all, all that to be said, like, I think that's the most important thing. You throw yourself at something. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You, you kind of move on and you can be cavalier about it. I can be cavalier about it because I certainly have done this, you know, and I have the scars to prove it, I suppose. But like, that, that attempt, people are so afraid of trying sometimes that they, they fail before they even begin. They stop and they don't take into account that what they could learn, David, you have, have said this over and over again, and I failed statistics classes. So even when we talked about the math tutoring, I'm probably going to have to go back and do that because <laughs> I, I suck at it.
but that was something this is where... way easier for me the second time around by the way yeah well <laughs> i have purposely avoided having to take the stats class in my masters because i didn't want to do that again like oh god i don't want to do this but all that to be said I, you know the the context of for failing is it's huge it's not i'm not afraid of it anymore i think it's it doesn't work that means that that idea while good in my head didn't connect to reality and so let's let's move on and do it sorry david i interrupted you no problem i was just saying that emma you've started something in the last while that's that's new for you as well in terms of editing uh, editing in, in journals so your editor now at, at this point and you're going to be coming back and joining us in another session so this is i suppose an opportunity for anyone who's listened to this to think of some questions fire them down in the, the chats below or reach out to us maybe through twitter or whatever it is and basically take dave's kind of template for really difficult questions uh, put them in there uh, and then Emma can just answer them uh, just like she did really eloquently and you know giving you a nice summary towards the end of it you know so you can expect all of that <laughs> in, a, in the future episode but no it, for, for real it's going to be it's going to be great and um, from our perspective we're going to have loads of questions for you as well Emma uh, and thanks for I'm hoping you ask questions I can't answer that um that I then have to go and change how I work <laughs> well, that, that's you a challenge too, isn't it <laughs> No, thanks very much. Uh, that's been that's been really interesting. Um, I'm taking away uh, definitely meaningful diversions and non-linear paths. That's what I've written down here to the side Excellent. of it. If that's all <laughs> we got out of this, I'm happy with that. That that actually helps my title though. So David, make sure you send that to me afterwards so we can label this thing appropriately. <laughs> meaningful diversions. <laughs> Excellent. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Emma. That was it was amazing. a pleasure to be here with you guys. Awesome. So in closing, meaningful diversions and David, what was the other thing again? Nonlinear pathways. And not, see, there's a nonlinear path. I couldn't remember it for in the 30 seconds that you said it. And with the wonderful Dr. Emma Smith, and we appreciate you so much. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening. Again, if you have questions, find us on Twitter, find us on LinkedIn, find us anywhere that this podcast is available because we just send it out like it's candy. And we look forward to the next episode and where we're going to probably be talking about and that wonderful thing called writing. So until next time. Thank you very much, Emma. Thanks for listening to episode five of Two Daves in the Dock with Dr. Emma Smith. Hopefully you gained some valuable insight on meaningful divergence and nonlinear paths. Join us next week as we have another exciting episode for you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.